Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. As always, I am your host, Dr. Corey Petty. Colin is out this week. He is moving, so he can't do very good podcasts from the car, and I don't want to listen to the background noise. So he'll be joining us when it gets back and done. Uh, today, we have Steve Marks, security engineer, consensus diligence. Um, why don't we get started by the normal way? You introduce yourself, kind of tell us where you come from, how you got into the space, and then we'll start talking about uh, consensus diligence from there. Sure. Hi, I'm Steve Marks. Uh, I got into Ethereum about a year ago, um, or two years ago now, I guess. Uh, I've been a consensus for about a year. My background's actually uh, developer platforms. Um, maybe my claim to fame is that I gave the Hello World demo of Microsoft Azure back in 2008. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, got to be on stage and, and, and sort of show people how that worked. Um, did a bunch of roles at Microsoft back in the day around... Uh, different sort of APIs, developer platforms, like spent a lot of my time teaching people how to build on new platforms. Um, then I, I, I did a little startup in between, went to Dropbox and did developer platform there, kind of kind of drove the uh, developer advocacy team there and, and um, did the API and platform kind of launch stuff there. And so I've kind of always been into building on new platforms and so Ethereum kind of snuck up on me. I didn't pay a lot of attention to blockchain stuff back then. Um, and then when I was when I left Dropbox and was kind of just looking around for what to do next, I just got kind of into it's like, oh, you could build these smart contracts. Like, as always, I'm interested in new developer platforms and figuring out what can you do with them that you couldn't do before. And yeah. so started writing a blog with a friend of mine uh, called Program the Blockchain. And uh, after about a year of that, uh, Consensus was reaching out and asking about doing security stuff. And so it's actually my first like professional job doing um, security work and doing auditing. Uh, but I've, I've really taken to it and kind of love it. Um, so it kind of combines the best of both worlds for me. If, you know, like a new platform where we're really just exploring and it's still pretty nascent, but also getting to do this kind of deep security work is really fun. Yeah, I kind of have a similar introduction to this space. I did like data science and, and computational physics. And then that bled me into breaking things or understanding like core concepts of how stuff works. And that then led into, you know, security work, which is just, it's just, it's a natural fit, especially in this space. Uh, mm -hmm. So like consensus diligence, you hear the word a lot. You hear it, you hear it happening. I feel like they do a lot of things. Can you talk about kind of what consensus diligence is in, um, how they kind of were formed as like, I would say one of the core parts of consensus. Yeah. It's uh, so I don't have a ton of the history because I joined a year ago. So yeah. there's a, there's a bit of the history that, that I'm kind of missing, but diligence is kind of interesting and, and perhaps like really poorly branded. <laughs> I think like <laughs> we don't do a great job of, of 
like letting people know what the team is and what we do. So the part I work on is probably the most straightforward part of the team. And it's how the team formed, which was the, the team formed around after like the Dow hack and was just kind of like, oh, shoot, like security auditing is going to be a really important thing if we want Ethereum to actually work. Like if yeah. we want these things to be safe and for users to actually be able to use it um, and not just lose all their money, uh, it's going to be critical that we have like security expertise and that we do that. And so that's how consensus kind of formed diligence was that there were a few people at consensus, sort of the early founders of the team who said, we're going to have to read code and verify that it's doing what it says it does and build some best practices around that and whatever. So that's how the team formed. And that's the part of the team that I'm on is, is, uh, mostly auditing, but I guess in general, like kind of security consulting, because we, we, we love to work with clients earlier in the process. We often don't, we often don't hear from them until they're ready for like a final audit. Um, but we do sort of cover the whole thing. And then there are two other pieces of diligence that, uh, are now sort of just building their own brands and that's MythX and Panvala. And I know that you've had on this show, you've had the leaders of those teams on already. Yeah. Bernard does uh, MythX and and uh, Neuron does uh, does Panvala, and they've they've both done episodes which uh, which I've listened to and are great. So if people want to like get deep on those, go there. I'll give you kind of the one or two sentence overview for both of those. Um, so MythX is building tooling around security analysis and and of of smart contracts. So they do static analysis, they do fuzzing, they do this uh, symbolic analysis, um, and basically try to find all these anti-patterns automatically. Uh, examples of things that work really well there are like re-entrancy bugs. That's something that like, tools yeah. are pretty good at identifying. The hard part is actually cutting down on like false positives and like noise with those. Um, so they do that and they've, they've built a service out of that and uh, it's, it's uh, coming out of beta soon. Um, so for now, I think you could still use it for free, but pretty soon you're going to have to pay to sort of submit code to that service and get results back. Yeah, it's um, kind of nice. We use those tools like a, when we do like a command line interface for like submit contract and it comes back with a report for you. It's pretty nice. I've used it before. And yeah. Things. Yeah. And now they've baked it into, there's like a remix plugin. So you can just like hit a button while you're typing your code there and they have like uh, GitHub integration or whatever. So like the CLI is awesome, but also you can just bake it into your like continuous integration system or into your editor and things like that. Um, they're going pretty heavily after like, can we bake this tool into all the right like places so that wherever people are like building yeah. these things, you want it to just say, Hey, you can't deploy this because of this problem. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, we, we actually get clients asking about this all the time. Like part of the way this service developed was because of like our customer demand. One is they wanted like a way to find some of this stuff before they came to us for an audit. Cause we would run all these tools and, but they weren't, they weren't super easy to run and they mm -hmm. weren't, you know, like they weren't easy for clients to use directly. And they wanted to run those first because they want to just get rid of all that stuff before they, they bothered us with the audit. And then a lot of people ask for, Hey, after this audit, you know, we're going to do a version two and we're, you know, what help can you give us to like maintain the security that we've achieved uh, as we go forward? So lots of people were asking for ways to just bake it into the process. And I think that's what, what the MythX, you know, service does. Um, yeah, and Panvala actually is um, hashing it out. Has a Panvala grant, and so when we start, when we get those disbursements, we'll be paying more. I guess being more a part of that community, as well as like talking about it more on the show, just because it's 
in my opinion, they're somewhat of a sponsor at this point. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Panval is doing the how do we distribute funds, yeah. you know, throughout the How do we the, pay for things system. that make the place better? Like, we're also having somewhat of a token lifestyle because EF grants right. and grants just, it doesn't, there's something missing in the loop. And I know that Panval is trying to like fix that part of it, which I, I definitely like want to happen and want to participate in. Yeah. All right. So, uh, what do y'all? What do y'all mostly do now? What do you mostly do now? What does your day consist of? My day is almost exclusively now just like reading code and filing issues. Like, like it's really it's auditing. Uh, um, we've we've gotten a pretty good pipeline for for a long time. Like, the team didn't have dedicated people on kind of like sales, business development, you know, that sort of stuff. Like, the team was kind of small, and frankly, we just got so much work coming in like being attached to consensus you know first of all we got we got a bunch of things just related to other parts of the consensus business and then we just sort of get referrals from other parts of the company all the time and so we just kind of had a ton of work that we would that we would just work through we've now actually streamlined all of that and so we spend less of our time trying to uh well the actual auditors on the team spend less of our time you know trying to hammer out um contracts and things and actually instead uh uh, working on code. And so these days, like I spend most of my time really uh, taking, you know, some clients contract system and, and manually reading through it um, and, and just sort of trying to identify issues. And so it's all a lot of like kind of manual review these days, um, especially because tooling has gotten so good that it's no longer the case that security auditors can just run some tools and find stuff because most of that has already been found because mm -hmm. uh, clients yeah. are learning to run those on their own. And so we get to do the actual work we should be getting paid to do, which is, you know, apply our brains uh, to really understanding what's unique about a contract system and, um, and finding issues in that. Um, so yeah, like that's most of my day to day is that. And then I, I spend, you know, the time that I have free on, on sort of tooling stuff for the team. Cause we're always trying to get better at, how we run audits, um, which uh, I don't know how super interesting that is for everybody to hear about, but but just kind of how do we streamline the process of, you know, you have a team of people looking at some code, trying to find bugs. How do you streamline the process of putting all those results together and, and you know, turning those into a report that you can give to a client um, and just kind of coordinating all that stuff. So so I send, spend some of my time on kind of team efficiency stuff, but um, but mostly it's, yeah, it's really just reading code. I actually find that quite interesting. I spend most of my time um, at Status trying to prepare code for audits, right? So like we're trying to streamline mm. the process of um, making sure that we can deliver, when we ask for an audit for something, we can deliver uh, like the set of everything an auditor would want, like like the dream set of what you would want to receive and saying like get to get you up to date and started and working on the actual core, like the things you need an auditor for, like you just said, and not all the minutia that a lot of the tooling now takes care of. And I'm mm -hmm. curious, and then part of that, like people get audits. I mean, unfortunately, people get audits for various reasons. Some of it is for pure marketing purposes to say, hey, uh, trust us. We've had other people look at it. And, we, and now we have a blog post that says we've had other people look at it, things like that. And so the things that you give back are a part of that, hey, we're maintaining a, a security health uh, narrative uh, for projects. <laughs> what is What is the process of getting things putting together a, an amount of information that it's a project who's, who doesn't have security experts can then take and use and, and do things with. 
Yeah. Uh, sorry, wait, are you asking about sort of like what, what should go into that sort of getting ready for an audit or, or no. the other way around? Like I was just, what's the, the other way around? Audit what do you, like, I'm, I, have, I, I spend most of my time on the other side getting ready. I'm kind of curious as to like, what, what are the difficulties of doing the audit, preparing things, the efficiency of creating an audit report, uh, so on and so forth? Oh, sorry. I, I lost you for a second there. My, my, my connection cut out. Could you say that again? Yeah, no worries. Um, what are the, like, what is the, uh, process like on the other end of the side, uh, other side of the, of the, of the, of the audit? Like I spend all of my time getting ready, trying to prepare things so that you can do an efficient mm -hmm. audit. What is, what is the audit team? And, and I guess from the consensus standpoint, um, doing to try and give an efficient audit and create efficient reports that a myriad of different clients can actually use and do something with. Yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm glad you asked that because that's actually something I think about a lot. Like I, I, I spend a lot of my time sort of wondering about this because you also have to pin down like kind of implicit in the way you ask the question and implicit in a way I think a lot of people think about audits is that the recipient of the audit report or the, the audience for the report is the developer. And I've actually started to try to shift our viewpoint on that a little bit to the, the developers who's paying us typically, right? The, the audit is usually not always, we've occasionally had people come in and say, Hey, can you audit this other code we're thinking of using, you know, but oh, yeah. it's usually the person who wrote the code and they're basically looking to get out of it. Hey, what are all the issues I have, you know, at the, at the base level, just give me a list of bugs and I'll fix them. But at a higher level, it's where did I architect things in a weird way or where are there opportunities for me to simplify things or reduce the surface area or whatever. Um, but I'm trying to expand our view to also be what what would someone who wants to use that system want to see in an audit report? Because another use of this is uh, not everyone who uses Ethereum smart contracts is capable of evaluating the quality of the code, right? Like, yeah. in fact... Hopefully most people aren't like the, the more we move to the mainstream, the more the end users have no idea what this contract is doing and if it's safe. Um, and an audit report might be the kind of artifact they could use to do that evaluation or, or maybe maybe that other security experts or other engineers could use. And so I've started to think about how can the audit report also reflect like explain the security properties of the system like you know if you put money in here it can't be removed unless one of these conditions is reached or yeah. something and so you start to start to get a specification from a security perspective of the system and we've we've tried to include more of that in what we do because that helps in two ways one it helps if this sort of curious bystander you know like looks and wants to learn about the thing from the from the audit report, but it also does help the development team because one of two things can happen. Either they look at that and they go, oh wait, that's wrong. Yeah. And, and we that, found that bugs. <laughs> we have found bugs where we read the smart contract and we were like, oh, obviously they're trying to do X. And then we verified and we went, yep, they're doing X. But when we explained that, they said, no, 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 we wanted to do Y, X shouldn't happen. Uh, and so it's interesting because part of the, work of doing this of doing security work in general is knowing what is the expected behavior of the system and does the actual behavior match that and sometimes it's obvious from you know reading code or reading documentation it's like well obviously we don't want anyone to be able to take anybody's money you know there's some things that are just yeah. clearly not how the contract should work and some things though are a lot subtler and 
uh, I'm glad to hear that when you guys are approaching an audit, you're looking at how do we document this stuff and whatever. But but sometimes we don't get very complete, you know, specifications well, of next, how things work. That was my work. next question is like in your experience, like how often are you actually getting, because in my opinion, like smart contracts are created by first understanding what the problem is, creating a very detailed specification around solving that problem in terms of like user stories and so on and so forth. And say like this, this thing does this and only this. And then mm -hmm. creating code that, satisfies those conditions. And then when you deliver something, you deliver all of that stuff together so that you can read a specification, then look at the code to make sure it matches that spec, like implementation matches specification. How often is that actually happening when people are coming to you for an audit? Yeah, I, I love how you phrase that. Like, I mean, that's exactly, that's, I love to hear that. That's, that's how people should be approaching this. I would say, um, I would say it's always sort of a, an eighty percent of that or something. You yeah. know, like like nobody ever really comes with kind of everything. Um, we actually tweaked our process a little while ago to add kind of a week before we start an audit. We have one person, you know, because the audit is usually like two or three people or whatever working yeah. sort of full time for a. We now have kind of uh, a role I've been calling a scout, or at least that's what I name. I don't know if anybody else on the team likes that name, but I call it a scout <laughs> who kind of looks ahead, like just tries to run the tests, you know, make sure the documentation is actually there, reads through stuff, tries to get an overview. So that we have a chance to kind of ask a client for that extra information or for, you know, where we're kind of, where we think something's missing before we get deep into the audit. Because once, once that, you know, kind of a clock starts ticking at that point, these, these audits aren't cheap. Um, they're always time boxed. Uh, they, yeah. And they're always, they're always time boxed. And so you're going to get, so you're, so you're paying a lot for a small period of time and you're going to get whatever fits into that amount of time. You know, now we, we do often end up like having to adjust that as we get into the code and see it's more complex than we thought or whatever. Um, we try not to just sort of cut off at a time if, if that's not the best <laughs> sort of outcome, but it's kind of, but I mean, there's some reality to that, that you're going to get out of it kind of what, what is possible to do in that time frame. So if my team has to spend, you know, three days just kind of, figuring out what the code's supposed to do that's that's just time that could have been spent really verifying it you know and and getting getting deeper and um thinking up new kind of threat models and whatever you know there's all this higher level stuff we'd like to do and we're most successful if the clients are really prepared um i guess i should plug we have like a webinar coming up called something like how to prepare for an audit um I, I would tell you the date, but I honestly don't know when it is. I'll add that uh, in the show notes whenever uh, we get some details around it. Yeah, that would be great. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, and people should check that out if they're wondering sort of what, from our perspective, like what what should you be ready for, you know, before before an audit? And a part of that preparation is for sure getting that stuff in order. Um, I think what happens is a lot of teams did do that sort of specification. You know, as you said, describe the problem we're going to solve write sort of a detailed specification of how we're going to solve it and then write some code. And I think that what happens is a lot of teams do that, but not in a way that they can really share that stuff with somebody else. So it's like, well, yes, we did think this the whole way through and we had a specification, but we don't have it in some way that we can just, you know, we can't send Easily you a link. consumable for you. Yeah. And it's, and it's full of our team's jargon and it's spread out through our wiki or something, you know, it's yeah. just, it hasn't been compiled and ready to go. And I think that's one of the biggest, you know, bang for your buck things you can do when getting ready for an audit is 
put that stuff together in a nice, easily consumable package. We usually schedule a meeting with the client like a day or two into the audit where it's like, we've had enough time to look at everything and now we have a bunch of questions. Yeah. So we usually like also just start grilling them at about that time to just really get them to walk us through anything that's confusing. Um, There's a fine line, by the way. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Dean Pierce on the team called this um, institutional capture. It's actually, it's a slightly different concept, but that concept institutional capture is kind of where you keep working with the same security firm and eventually they just believe all the false things that you believe. <laughs> like they adopt uh, all your assumptions. And, yeah, and so one reason why we tend to do that meeting a day or two into the audit is we don't want to get all those biases and assumptions in our heads too early. So it's this interesting fine line where we want to get as much information from the development team as we can, because they're the experts in the code. But we also don't want them to convince us of something that's not true. You know, like, oh, everywhere we do this, we do this kind of check. So that's fine. You know, because that gets in your head. Yeah. Um, a good experienced auditor hears that and puts up their own mental blocks, you know, writes down, hey, uh -huh. verify that <laughs> assumption, you know, but it's hard. It, you know, it it's um there's plenty of research showing that if you if you give people false facts and then you tell them afterwards that that's false they still kind of believe it like it it when you hear something it doesn't always get captured by that filter um usually this this is in the field of politics that people mm -hmm. are you know yeah. doing this a lot like hey can i tell you something that's not true and get you to believe it and the answer is to some extent yes like if you hear something you assign it a little bit of truth no matter what the source was, whatever. And so we try to insulate ourselves from that a little bit by having like this scouting and then everybody kind of looking at the code a little bit before we get the the development team who obviously by now thinks that they've built a secure system. Um, and so may kind of mislead us unintentionally into, into adopting all of their assumptions. It's like when you read your own code and you can't spot that bug that's been there forever. Yeah. It's because you you just kind of skim over it. Assume, like, you, like you oh, believe... that part's fine. And that's where the bug was. Yeah. You think you know what that does. You think you have a perfect mental model of it. It's hard to break that out. And that's one of the reasons you go to a third party to get some some help. You you go for their expertise and kind of particular, particular orientation around security. But also, it's a new pair of eyes, a fresh mindset, somebody who doesn't have any of those assumptions, doesn't know the history of the code, how it used to look, whatever, you know, can kind of come in fresh. Um, so it's something we we pay a lot of attention to is how we approach that with the client. Yeah, it's something like I, I find this area of, of kind of focus pretty fascinating, especially with the way it's developed over the past couple of years in terms of, um, like you just said, like only, it's only been a few years that the diligence has existed because it's been like, oh, wow, this is going to be an issue. It's going to continue to be an mm -hmm. issue. And it's also been even a shorter amount of time where we've had kind of institutional security firms enter the space and start contributing. Um, and so the relative abundance of um, security professionals is, is low compared to the amount of people yeah. who are trying to create um, smart contracts and do development here because it's like like the way that we set up Ethereum has basically been um, a, a very low barrier of entry. So it's easy to get started in building things, but it's also that building something to being production ready is a very wide gap. And we have a very small amount of people who can evaluate the production ready stuff and say, yeah, you're probably, you're, you're good to go. Or like, we didn't find anything. Um, mm -hmm. And what I like about a lot of this stuff is that the, the tooling 
and the availability of the tooling is getting better and better and better very, very fast. So that when someone, like the tools people use to do development are catching a lot of the low hanging fruit um, that you don't want to spend your time doing so that when someone actually comes for a security audit, you get to do all of that fun stuff that you just said, asking high level questions, making sure that the architecture that they set out to do does what they think it's supposed to do. And there aren't right. like edge cases for things like that. And so I get really excited about this because at the end of the day, like um, not everyone's going to be able to afford an audit and mm -hmm. like associating risk or like evaluating risk of something and then figuring out is that, is it worth actually going for an audit is I don't think exists yet. Have you had any, any like insight as to like, how does someone figure out when it's time to go get an audit? How do you, how do you evaluate risk for these types of things? And then, and then to then like figure out, is it auditable or could you just deploy it and then see what happens and go hope for an upgrade or get an audit later? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I'm not sure I have a, I'm not sure I have a great answer to it. I, I will say like, so, right. I mean, the, the fundamental point you make is, is absolutely right, which is tools are going to just push, you know, we're pushing these things together. Tools are gradually like building up to find a bunch of the issues and kind of push the quality it's, it's higher. It's never going to be as good as an and auditor. Then, right. It just means the auditors get to do even more valuable work. Like, I mean, it, it just frees up the auditors to really like, well, I don't have to look for this kind of bug because it's, I know it's not going to be there. I get to spend my time thinking about these higher level things. So like, I, I definitely see the same, the same motion. And as you said, it's moved really fast, like, like really far, really fast over, you know, just the past like year or two, maybe, um, from, from almost nothing to like, to some really robust tools. And then, um, the question of sort of, when do you need an audit or, you know, how do you know that? And I think tools will help. Like, I think one thing is tools will, tools tend to point out complexity in the code in interesting ways. And it depends how you design the tool. And, um, I actually have a Microsoft anecdote about this that I'll, that I'll get to in a second. Let me, let me sort of make the point and then back it up a little bit, which is that um, if you build the tool, there are kind of two, two modes an analysis tool can kind of run in, I think. Um, this is an oversimplification. But one is my code, I think my code's already perfect. I want to catch anything I introduce. So crank up the false positives, basically. I don't mind. I'm going to fix everything. I'm going to whatever. Um, another mode is, well, I wrote a ton of code and now I want to find issues and I don't want a huge list of things to check. I want you to find the real things that you know are bugs, right? So there you're cranking the false positives down. And this is always like a dial that sort of goes back and forth. And um, you want kind of different settings in different phases, I think. Eventually you want to crank the false positives way up. And here's to my point of them you know, tools kind of telling you about complexity is if you crank that dial the whole way to like, well, give me all the false positives, you get false positives in the code that the tool can't understand. And so you start to see where code is not brain dead simple, uh, because okay. if it were, the tool would understand it and would see that you don't have a bug here. So the, I'll, I'll give a more concrete example of this, which is um, some work I did in Microsoft uh, back, I, I guess now, like 15 years ago or so, um, we were working on on windows and we're trying to like get rid of all the um uh of all the buffer overruns in windows uh, there wow. were a lot there probably still are <laughs> wow. uh we're talking millions and millions of lines of code and whatever and so what we did is we built an a static analysis tool this was all c code c, c mm -hmm. or c plus plus code 
um, mostly C. And we wrote some analysis tools where you could decorate things and you could say, well, this parameter. So, you know, in C, what you have is you have a pointer to something and then somewhere else you're keeping track of how much data you're allowed to read there yeah. and or write. And buffer overruns happen when those don't match up. So we designed uh, a language basically to say, hey, this parameter is a buffer and its length is given by this other parameter. And that length might be in bytes or it might be in characters because at some point Windows moved from single byte characters to Unicode, right? And so, so you get kind of gaps there and what those mean. And then we're going to run these analysis tools that just check every time you access a buffer and make sure it's in bounds. Um, so great idea. <laughs> we ran all that code and we did get a lot of false positives. We'd get developers coming back and saying, hey, your tool told me this is broken, but I know it's not, you know, you can only call this with this kind of thing. It's only called by one caller and that caller actually allocates extra space specifically for this reason. Or this loop is a little weird, but it actually does make sure that it's always inbound. And to to a really impressive level, especially for, uh, for Microsoft at that time, which was I think only like turning the corner on taking security really seriously, mm -hmm. we actually set a policy in Windows that said, tough, if the tool doesn't understand your code, you have to fix your code. I, I don't care <laughs> that you're right that there isn't a buffer overrun, like you have to make the code simple enough that the tool can understand it, which isn't that hard. You just have to put like bounds checks in there or make sure your loop is actually bound by the the right variable or something um but in a code base the size of windows this was like a huge undertaking and and uh and it worked i mean i think the results are amazing like we we killed a bunch of buffer overruns probably most weren't i don't want to make it sound like windows was riddled they, with these exploitable the things of most of them things, weren't you, you know changed a lot you increased a lot of code quality in terms of like exactly standards like, and, and and just just didn't have to worry about you know we 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 kind of just knocked out that class of bugs. Like as long as the annotations were correct, which you could kind of check in a different way, you know, and where the tools actually said like, no, this code isn't going to overrun this buffer. And that's impressive. It's a bit, it's a hard bug to get rid of. Um, and we really kind of did once all the code was, go I mean, it was years and years to actually have all the code get kind of updated. So the tools can understand it. Um, but so bringing that, the, the reason for that anecdote is we were talking about how do you know, you know, how do you assess the code quality or whatever? And one way is you look at this kind of complexity, like can tools understand, you know, raise the bar on the tool to, I'm going to prove that your code's correct. <laughs> and then if it can't, you go, well, now I have a problem. Either I should simplify my code or I, or I'm going to need some expertise. Like, you know, that might be the point where you say, look, the tools are telling me they can't verify this. You know, they don't really know if I'm doing this right. Um, it's time to go to the experts. Uh, and I would say the other angle on this is when the specification is complicated, you know, when, when the behavior you want is not very straightforward, the tools aren't going to particularly help you verify that the behavior is right. They're going to look for some specific kind of patterns of, the, you know, the way you like reentrancy or, you know, or, or authorization on things or something. They're going to say, well, you're not checking the thing you're supposed to be checking here, or you're doing these things in the wrong order, or you could have an overflow. Um, they're not going to say, oh, you wanted to make it so people could only purchase based on a signature once, but the, you, they can actually do it multiple times. Like, cause that's a, that's not in the code. Yeah. That's some sort of specification of how the thing's supposed to work. And so when you find that that specification is getting kind of big or unwieldy or hard to keep in your head at once or whatever, that's a really good sign that you want to go to 
to somebody with with uh, with a lot of expertise who, in particular, can help go through that with you. Identify what are the right threats to be worried about. What's the surface area they might try to attack? How do we match up? You know what they can do with 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 uh, what the behavior you expect is, um, and and that tools won't help very much with even formal verification tools, which sort of try to do that, require you to write a spec that's really, really good. And that is something that most people aren't going to be able to do. Um, it's 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 uh, at least as hard as writing the code correctly in the first place. And we know we can't write the code correctly in the first place. And actually, I, I would add to that and say that like blockchain adds a few things that are unique to like this concept of like risk assessment. And mm -hmm. that is, well, there's, there's two things. Well, I want to make a false dichotomy or whatever, but um, one, it's immutable code. So once you deploy it, it stays that way. Um, mm -hmm. So you have to spend a lot more time up front making sure you get it right. Uh, and so it's what like the risk, the risk of it breaking has to be taken into account. And then the consequences of how to fix that, how to mitigate or triage that breakage. The next one is that like, because it's in, in, inherently money, or value, mm -hmm. value flow, you have to then uh, assess what is the potential um, risk of losing the value associated with whatever this functionality is or mm. something going wrong with it. And uh, I guess like, I work for Status as a, as a security engineer, but we also have um, a swarm called Token Economics where products have to go through or potential features have to go through basically like an economics audit of what does this thing do and what is the potential like blow up of value that this thing could have relative to the other things that status does uh and that helps us uh, uh, figure out whether or not um this feature is like if it breaks okay there's not a large impact on uh users or value and, and status or the token or anything like that which i think really needs to be taken into account because you can have something that's ultra complicated, but doesn't have a lot of impact on the thing you care about most in some circumstances. And so right. you might not need to get an audit because you can just fix it and re-implement it and it does not have a big effect. Right, yeah, that's a great point, right. That was completely missing from everything I said, but it's absolutely true, which is, I mean, to give a trivial example, you know, if you have a contract that holds like, you know, $500 worth of value, and if somebody breaks it, you lose $500, and so just deploy a new contract, yeah. put $500 in it, you're out 500 bucks. No audit is going to cost less than that. And so yeah. to some extent, there's just, there's never any reason to do an audit on something that has, uh, that controls that little value. Um, and then, yeah, as you said, you've got to really do the full economic evaluation of not, not just like how many, how many ether are sitting in this contract, but also just what can go wrong. Like, what is the worst case scenario? Like, what is the kind of liability, um, including perhaps like, does it hurt our reputation in some yeah, way? That, there's you know, the, there's it, other it, things it, that yeah. aren't as as quantitative you need to take into account. And and bringing back like the, the immutability part, you need to think about the lifetime of this contract um, mm -hmm. and what can happen in terms. Like, say for instance, uh, we have status only have a few thousand users right now or so, like active users, and so a contract may not blow up to be a huge amount of money, but eventually. We may have millions of users and that same contract, which we may forgot about mm -hmm. and assumed works really well, may blow up and then be completely unusable or broken in the process right. of it's trying to scale to that many users. We have to think about that type of, or people have to think about that type of stuff too, because if redeploying contracts or upgrading contracts to then move state from one to the next is incredibly complicated. Right, right. 
Right. And yeah, exactly. You have to predict the future impact of a bug, not just, yeah. you know, yeah, today we're deploying in a sort of beta or whatever, right? But like, you have to worry about that future thing. Um, I'm kind of glad you bring up like mute immutability and upgradability because I, I this is like a passion topic of mine which is i wrote a blog post a while ago called upgradability is a bug i've read that. Probably, I, saw, I saw that like, but i didn't read it can you, can you talk about that it's, it's probably like the most read and controversial thing i've written in <laughs> quite a while but um but basically and i can tell from the way that you're talking about the ability to upgrade, you know, talking about deploying a new contract, migrating state, whatever, that you think about it much the same way that I do. So the title is inflammatory. Before anybody gets super mad at me, (laughs) I just, I just want to say like, it is a little bit of clickbait. I don't mean that it's bad to be able to upgrade things. What I mean is there's, there's been this push somewhat recently about like just carte blanche upgradability. Like I want to just be able to change the code at any moment in my smart contract and mm. just, you know, so this proxy pattern where you, you sort of oh, stand up yeah. this proxy that just sends to another address and then you can just swap out that address and it's suddenly doing something new. This is the thing I really wanted to rail against and is my main point in there is that um, if somebody is going to trust a smart contract, they need to know what it's going to do. And there are two big things that I've been arguing against, uh, two things that harm that. One is if it's mutable, then... I don't know what it's going to do because that might change by the time my transaction actually runs or whatever, or I might put some funds in there and then the behavior of the thing changes and now I can't get them back out or something like that. So mutability kind of harms that. And then the other one that I've, I've been, uh, I, I discovered at rhymes. So, so contracts that are mutable or inscrutable. Um, that's, that's my clever rhyme there. I, I know it's great. Uh, <laughs> Uh, inscrutable being, I just can't tell what it does, you know, like obfuscated code or, you know, code byte code where I didn't share the solidity source or whatever, you know, that sort of stuff. Well, nobody's going to really be able to tell what it does. And, um, and so that, you know, so either I can't read the code, I can't tell what it does, or I can see the code and I don't, I know what it does right now, but it might change at any time. Both of those mean that it can't be trusted, that that code can't be trusted. And so that was the only point I was trying to make there. But I think it's a really good one as people think about security risk. It's really tough because you want to be able to fix bugs. Like we know bugs are going to happen. Uh, They're not all going to get caught. The audit process helps, but you're going to, bugs are going to get through. We know that. Um, And there's a question of how you can respond to those bugs. And, uh, but the answer is not, turn your immutable contract into a mutable one. Like you need to think of what is the trust model you have. You you know, there are various people who are using this contract. The developer is sometimes not even one of them, but there are, you know, Mm -hmm. various parties kind of using this thing. What do they need to know is guaranteed? And then you can't make that part mutable, you know? So if they, there might be parts that it's like, well, this is kind of fuzzy and actually doesn't matter how this part works. Great. Then that's fine to kind of swap out logic on, but, uh, often the core functionality of the thing just really can't be mutable. And so instead you have to look at this kind of, um, you know, how do you migrate to a new contract and, and how do you let, or let people opt into a change you want to make? Um, that's, I, I see this a lot actually is a pretty good governance property where, where like, we're sort of going to use that proxy pattern. You know, we're going to be able to point you to the latest code, but if you were using the old contract, you get to keep using it till you decide that you want to switch. Yeah. And and that way you don't have to worry about someone changing it out from under you, 
But a benevolent developer who is like, well, I've made a security fix can make that easily available to you once you choose to move over. Um, and other people are doing sort of these time lock things, which I think is sort of in between, which is like, we can change this code, but we have to give everybody one month notice before we do it. And that gives them plenty of time to move their funds out or, you know, you have to think through what will people be able to do during that time period to kind of, if, if you're making some evil change that they don't like, you know, what, what will they do? But that can increase trust too. Th then it's like, well, I don't have to worry about you front running me and changing the code behavior yeah, exit while scan, I'm making a, a transaction. Yeah, know. exactly. Uh, and so I have that month to hopefully remove any funds I've stored there or, you know, cancel any, you know, whatever sort of the, the functionality is. And so, um, so people should think about what are they going to do when a bug happens? Like, I think that's a really, really good thing to think about before you deploy something is like, what are the different kinds of bugs we can think of that might happen? What will we do in case any of those crop up? Uh, I just, the answer shouldn't be, let's just build in this like generic upgrade ability and then we can change whatever we want, whenever we want like, that. That's not gonna, that's not gonna that'll help you fix bugs, but it means no one should use your contract. Yeah. 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 That was actually, I think part of this, this problem is, is a bit inherent to the way we created things in the first place. And that is, um, like the language and what it's modeled, modeled after is not conducive mm -hmm. to the mindset you should, you should have when building smart contracts directly. So like yeah. we modeled it after JavaScript in a lot of ways. And JavaScript is not like most people who learn JavaScript are doing things that doesn't enforce those like programming practices. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not um, critical code. It's web frameworks that can fail in a lot of ways. Um, and then you just handle the failure appropriately. Whereas, you know, if we, if, so the types of people who are creating smart contracts come in because there's a low barrier of entry, come in with that mindset. And that's not the way you should be thinking about creating smart contracts appropriately. So you end up cre like creating contracts with a programming mindset that is like an antithetical to how you should do it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that a hundred percent. I actually was recently auditing some Bitcoin script as part of you know there's an audit that had sort of an ethereum component and a bitcoin mm -hmm. component and a little bit branching out of my comfort zone but was was auditing bitcoin script and i kind of wish that every smart contract developer started with bitcoin mm -hmm. script because it is extremely constrained it is not a turing complete language it doesn't have loops um it doesn't have state uh and so in a lot of ways it's kind of ideal for the kind of thing you should build with smart contracts except that it's just terribly limited. Like yeah. actually adding state is great. Having loops is great. Um, Turing complete, I'm not like totally sold on that that's necessary, but uh, but frankly, Ethereum smart contracts aren't Turing complete anyway because they have limited gas. Um, but anyway, but so Solidity went kind of really far on the extreme of, oh, it's just kind of, it's like a generic programming language is you, and you can write whatever you want. Bitcoin script went the other way, which is like, well, we started without like the notion of this but we need some we need some limited ability to check like signatures and you know do multi-sig and stuff like that and so it came from like some specific scenarios and was an extremely constrained language that's hard to make like really bad mistakes in you know it, just just code review can really do a lot with a bitcoin script i think and then yeah on the solidity side we kind of went crazy um and i was hoping that viper would be the answer the in-between, you know, Viper sort of constrains you a lot. It's it's an alternative to writing Solidity. It's, it looks a lot more like Python than JavaScript, but that's only 
you know, that's the superficial differences, right? Um, Some of the main differences are they got rid of like inheritance and modifiers. um, And uh, they gave actual stronger types around things like, like you can't get confused between some, your like loop variable and an amount of ether you're going to send. You know, which you can in Solidity. They're both just numbers. They're integers, yeah. and it doesn't matter. In in Viper, they they so they beefed up kind of the type system. They got rid of some of the more confusing ways to write code that are in Solidity. Um, and so I it I it remains to be seen how successful Viper will be. But I'm kind of rooting for it or for something like that to be a better language that's more oriented around the types of things that people can and should do with smart contracts which are mostly sort of financial kind of manipulations mm-hmm. sort of things and if we can get that stuff just more obviously correct um and resort you know to just yeah we should be constrained a lot i guess is the is the point like you really shouldn't be able to write anything you want in these smart contracts you should have to follow some some rules um even if there's an escape hatch for the occasional place where like, oh no, I have to do something really weird here. Um, fine, I have to break out of the sandbox. Most of your code should be in this really safe way. Uh, and uh, perhaps Rust is a good like analogy to that. Mm-hmm. Rust as a programming language does, they say like, well, look, we don't want people to have like um, race conditions with data, you know? And so we're gonna build into the language things around borrowing references and you know like who, who can actually write to this when and how do we pass these things off between threads and then if you want to you can put unsafe on something and you can write something else you know like that's an option but you should feel bad when you do it <laughs> and you aren't getting the guarantees you know you're not getting the help you wanted that's how i think we should be approaching languages in ethereum is if you stay in this path we're going to take care of a bunch of problems for you. We're, the compiler is going to make sure you don't have these certain kinds of bugs and whatever. And if you have to stray, you know, caveat emptor, right? Like, like you can do that, but now you're taking on a much higher burden. You you better know what, exactly what you're doing. You may need to get you know professional support from 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 a security auditor on that on that stuff in particular. Um, that's what I'd love to see. And Solidity doesn't yet have that. There is no happy path. Oh, if you keep yourself to these few functions or these three few constructs, you're okay. Like it really doesn't have that. Um, and so so I hope that we get there. Although I don't I don't have many like specific answers for how to do that. Well, speaking of hopes and dreams. Um... What are you? What are you excited about? Like, what do you? What like? What's what's coming up? Or you see maybe like trending or, or somewhat of a paradigm shift in the space that, that you're excited to to keep going? Man, that's a great question. I should have a ready answer to. Um, I don't like asking questions that people have ready answers for. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, fair enough then. Then success. Uh, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm excited about a lot of stuff in the space. I'll say that one thing, like that I don't get super excited about is sort of new, um, uh, a lot of people are sort of like, you know, they're following like, hey, this these people launched this new way to do like this kind of new finance thing that didn't exist before and whatever. I'm actually much less interested in those like specific applications that launch on Ethereum than I am in the, we've opened a new door like I said, from my background, like what I'm really excited about is a brand new platform and, oh, now we can do things we couldn't do before. And what I like seeing on Ethereum is stuff like, 
like um, I'm trying to think of a good example. I don't know, maybe meta transactions is kind of so. So the idea of a meta yeah. transaction for people who don't know is like instead of sending a transaction yourself and paying gas for that, you could just sign a message saying what you meant to do and let somebody else send that to the blockchain and pay gas. And perhaps then you reward them in a token or something like that. So basically, so so meta transaction, because it's a transaction, but you don't actually have to send a transaction to do it. You, you sort of sign that thing. That's like sort of a, that's opening a door. That's like, well, now, like, I don't know of a good use case offhand for why I need that, but I can definitely see that there's potential if you have that mechanism to build some new kinds of things. Um, in particular, the meta transactions, I think, help people around like this sort of onboarding process. Yeah. Like, what if I don't have ether? Like, how do I get in there? Yeah. And so I'm excited about that kind of stuff. And, um, and I'm excited about actual Ethereum, like sort of core protocol stuff, you know, Ethereum 2.0 stuff. There's a lot. Yeah, that's a moving target, like what exactly that means. But a lot of work around um sharding and then how we can do a bunch of stuff in parallel and how those sort of cross shard things work i think that's really exciting because i think opening up scale will open up like a lot of other kinds of applications and so so all the things i'm excited about are the flavor like i'm, I'm not doing a great job of examples but the flavor of them is for Ethereum to get to the next level, it has to have sort of an explosion of different applications and things you can do with it. And I like things that are enabling technologies for that. So like, I like to see the sort of technical innovation that opens those possibilities up much more than I'm excited about a particular app, you know, like some, somebody builds some new dApp and it's cool and people like it. Great. It almost never gets me that excited, <laughs> but um, but if they're building some new technology, if they're, if they've advanced the, you know, how state channels can work, or they've done some side chain thing that actually has some unique properties like that gets me excited because I, even if I can't figure out exactly how that's going to make a big difference, I could tell, like I could feel that, oh, that's an enabling technology that's going to do things. And that's how I feel about Ethereum in general. Like when I first saw smart contracts, I struggled to think of like, even just a handful of ideas of what I would do with a smart contract, but I could kind of intuitively tell, oh, this is the kind of platform it enables these new sort of trustless interactions. Somebody's going to come up with good use cases. That's not my strong suit, but I can contribute to the, the technology part of it. Yeah, I, I came from, like someone mentioned this to me and I never quite got um, like why I can maybe uh, comprehend or understand the value of a lot of this stuff is that I came from the high performance computing uh, field doing a mm -hmm. lot of like a scientific research on, on, on massive clusters. And the concept of um, buying time or buying computation time was, 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 was okay to me because there's only a few of these machines around the world that are capable of doing these really large calculations. In order to use them, you have to mm -hmm. buy time on them. And so you have to really think about how you're going to use that time efficiently because otherwise you can't get any research done. Um, right. That concept isn't, is, is foreign to a lot of people, which I didn't, I didn't, make that click until someone explained that to me that like that's not normal and ethereum is that concept but on a massively distributed open so open scale right and so mm -hmm. most people when they think about using ethereum they think of it in the context of like everyday computation it's like why do i need to pay for something when i have it on my phone it's because you're thinking about the concepts of using a machine right. like that incorrectly and the, right. the value of that is only applicable to certain types of things and not everything is supposed to be used there uh, and so like expanding that use case and then making it like uh, understanding what type of use cases those things are really good for as the like usability and maybe uh, efficiency gets better 
is is was where I'm at, which I think is uh, in line with what you just said. It's, it's you're talking about more like the specific technologies. I'm thinking about the broad like mm-hmm. what those technologies then enable us as humanity to do in terms of like communication and finance and stuff. Right, right. Yeah, people, I, I like when people describe Ethereum as like the world's slowest and most expensive computer. Yeah, because that's, that's, exactly that's what actually, it is. it's a really good place to start. I mean, that sounds stupid. Then it's like, well, why do we want Ethereum? But that's perfect. Like a really good mindset to go into this stuff is go, oh, that sounds stupid. I wouldn't want to run anything there. Why would you want to do that? And then I go, well, hey, what if we wanted to flip a coin long distance and the winner gets a dollar? How would you do that? without something like Ethereum, you yeah. know, like, like, well, you send me the money first and I'll flip the coin, you know, like, or right. Like you get, that's how I usually explain to people. I do it with a gambling thing. Cause I think it's a very straightforward, it's like, oh yeah, I don't trust the person I'm betting against. Like that's obvious. Right. Like, and then you get to, well, what could you trust? So you get a third party. Well, that like now yeah. you both have to trust that. And it's like, well, no, here's where the world's most expensive and slowest computer comes in. It's one where we can both trust that the computation is going to be done fairly and exactly how we thought it would. And and we're going to have to pay for that. Like that does come at an expense. Um, but there are use cases where that's totally worth it. And and that's so I think it's a good place to start, actually, thinking that Ethereum is really stupid and then move to okay, but what are people actually doing and why are they doing it? (laughs) Right. And, and once you see one or two compelling use cases, then you realize, oh, it's a, it's an enabling technology. It's letting people do things that otherwise I I don't know how we would do. Um, And that to me is what, I mean, that's what drew me in and got me really excited in the first place. And yeah, it's what still gets me excited is, is seeing that, um, seen mostly seen other people explore that like again like my strength is really like seeing that technology and helping people to understand how to use it and in, in the case of doing security work it's how to use it safely you know in, in a way that that isn't going to blow up in your face and then just watching them build all sorts of cool innovative stuff on it like that that's really where where i live so so you'll never see me out there you know building a brand new kind of thing but you will see me um exploring the technology and helping other people to realize like what's possible. Yeah, actually I call myself a professional hole puncher. I try and build a skill set around that. It's like I, I'm not doing a lot of the things myself. I'm just evaluating what other people are doing and be like, that's that they're gonna have a problem right there. And that should be fixed first before yeah. you move forward. <laughs> and building a skill set around making sure I can do that really well. And I think that's like and that's that allows me to kind of get a broad scope of what's happening and get excited about potential use cases and then seeing people implement those things like, okay, this is novel or this is, this is interesting. Or like, okay, you have a problem here. This is how you're going to fix it. Go do that. Cause I don't want to do it. I, I might steal that. That sounds like a perfect description of security work in general. Professional hole punchers. You just, there's a hole there. I, I'm going to blow it wide open and you're going to have to go fix that now. Right. All right. Uh, yeah, that's, that's great. A nice way to wrap this up. Um, are there any questions that you wish I would have asked that I didn't? Oh man, that's good. Um, maybe. Well, all right. It's, I don't know what question you would have asked to lead me to talk about this, but I will give sort of one one final thought. I think that has been on my mind a lot lately, which we touched on, which is how to get involved earlier. Like, mm. I hate yeah. when we get handed some code and we go, "Oh, if you'd just written it this way instead, everything would have been better," <laughs> and it's too late. 
you know, by the time we give that advice, they've already written, they've buttoned everything up. They haven't just, it's you paid know, for all the and development. So, there's like, there's a lot of, right. Yeah. Right. So we're always looking to figure out how do we get in earlier in the process and kind of give architectural advice or give sort of early like code reviews even, and just go like, Hey, here's a thing you might want to, um, we've done this a couple of times, but it's nice when we get to get in there and go like, Hey, you know what? You're doing this thing. And you really should be doing it this way. Or let let me give you like let me have one of one of our guys give you give your team like a thirty minute presentation about this one kind of best practice or this sort of thing. Or you know like oh you're building a payment channel. Guess what? We kind of have a checklist of things you want to think about yeah. for payment channels, and we'd like to give that to you now before you write all the code. And and by the way, when you get to your audit, it's now going to be cheaper because it's not going to take as much work because the code's going to be better. It's going to be simpler. Um, there's going to be less attack surface. And whatever. So we've been struggling with how to do this. And I don't have any answers except sort of a plea to anybody who's listening, who, who's thinking about hiring us later for an audit is hire us now and or at least get in touch with us and just think about how we can start the process considerably earlier um, and again, I don't think this necessarily has to be more expensive. Like I think that an audit at the end is a really big, heavy kind of expense and you can actually smooth it out a little bit by heading some of these things off early on. And so that's something I've been thinking about a lot is how we truly get involved, you know, how we're not just being auditors at the end, but we're really being kind of security partners throughout. And we're doing this with some clients, um, who were basically, we did an audit and when they were, but they're doing more work and they wanted us to kind of get involved earlier. And as I said, that's part of how MythX kind of get mm -hmm. got going is, is people wanted that um, ongoing stuff, but we don't get to do it much. So, so open question for people, please, please tweet me or whatever. Well, if you have ideas, that's something what's I, a good I think way about, to get in there. It's something I think about a lot actually. And, and I, um, I, there's a few things that you can do to help with that. One, as always is education. And that's similar mm -hmm. to the types of things you, the, the webinar that you mentioned earlier. It, and um, making standards and then discussing with people, like having someone like me in a company that tries to corral all this stuff and then make sure that they're doing the right things so that you get to an audit appropriately. Um, yeah. Is, or can, can really, really help. Some people can't afford that. And what, what, what do they do? One, the tooling's getting better. The tooling, the way the tooling is created and the types of things that output from it um, help people should guide you in a way of the types like the way in which you should be doing things and the types of things you should be looking for to have for like a formal audit uh and then like i think the main like the main driving force or the creation force of the f security community was creating mm -hmm. all of these guides and standards and checklists and things like that it's just funding and time basically is the, the bane of everyone in the space's existence yeah uh and like the, the the next thing that I think would be interesting or like useful uh, is retainers. Uh, yeah, have a security firm that you like, or maybe multiple, and put them on retainer so that when you have questions, you're starting a project, you say, "Okay, check. Uh, can, you, can you? This is what this is our idea. This is our the implementation ideas we have. This is a rough sketch. Um, can you look at this and say, you know, give us a checklist and then maybe help us figure out risk associated with what it could be. And then we'll start developing it and we'll come to you when we're done with an audit. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what we found. And we've, I think we've pretty much only been successful in having this kind of relationship with people after their first audit. <laughs> like, I think what's usually happened for us is we've done an audit and then the, as they've started, as a the company started planning, you know, V2 or, you know, or yeah. adding some 
functionality. Then they're like, hey, can we run this past you? And we're like, yes, thank you. <laughs> right. Like yeah. that's I mean, we love that. Like it is it is the best time for us to really we can make a huge difference in, you know, half an hour of time if it's at the right time, you know, and and the audit is too late for some of that. We're we're making a huge every critical bug we find is obviously tremendous impact and whatever. But if we could have upfront just headed that off by giving a little architectural advice or or just here's a thing to watch out for as you implement this or something. Um, it's amazing, you know, when you when you get a hold of an expert, like sometimes uh, th they can give you sort of that that really a little bit of their time can go a long way. And so I wish we got more of that before the first audit. What we tend to do is like after we've, you know, people love the audit work we did and then they're like, hey, how else can we work together? Um, and I love those relationships. Those are kind of the the clients I, I feel like we're helping the most. Um, so I've been on a crusade to try to like, well, all I've really done is sit around and think about it a lot. Other people on the team have been trying to like really um, get this out there with clients. And so anyway, so when you said like, hey, what else, what did we miss? That's been on my mind. And anytime I have a chance to put that in front of other people and have them think about it and um, and maybe give us some feedback on how we can do that better. Uh, I, I love to bring that up. Yeah, yeah that's a, I'm, I'm really glad you said that. And, and continuing with the whole punching analogy, um, if, if you have the ability to look for holes in an early project that's small and identify them, um, you can fix them before they, like, as you continue a project and you build something, holes exacerbate and grow drastically. And so by the time they yeah. come to an audit, that small hole you would have found early just by saying, oh no, you're gonna have a problem here, you should fix that um, for a small amount of time, um, turns into something like you have a serious issue that needs a complete re-architecture in, yeah. in a lot of circumstances. Yep. Or like this is going to have this has a major drawback in what you're trying to do because of the way you you've built everything around it, and so as you build things on top of stuff, that the stacks below get ossified. You can't change them very well because you have like you know consequential effects on things above them. And I think that's like if people can can visualize that of like I have this small idea, this project. Let's run it by an expert for a small amount of time, or or over a retainer, or just pass it through something, and then they can say, okay, here's an issue, you're gonna fix that, okay, from there, it seems solid, you should go start building it now. We'll look at it when you're mm. done. Um, if yeah. people have that mindset, I think that's just a very quality mindset. But once again, there's only a few of you in the space that are capable of <laughs> right. doing that. And you only right. have enough, enough time, and if they get to the point where like, that's all you do, the prices of that's are gonna rise. So standards and education around doing that have to grow as well. Yeah. Yeah, 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 good point. Yep. Yeah, All right, well cool. Said. Yeah, I think we're both quite passionate about that subject. Uh, we could probably talk <laughs> yeah. about it forever. Uh, but uh, that's all the time we have. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, how can people would... reach you and, and learn more? Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It, it was a blast. Um, yeah, people can always find, uh, you know, diligence at consensus.net is the way to get to our whole team. That's like the easiest. We have like web forms you can fill out, but man, just email us. Um, and uh, and I'm online everywhere as Smarks. So so I, I'm GitHub, I'm Smarks on GitHub, uh, on twitter.com slash Smarks, all that stuff. So if people want to get me, uh, they can do that way or, or steve.marks at consensus.net. Um, that one's harder to remember. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Get in touch if you, if you have any feedback on any of this stuff or if, uh, or if, obviously if you're interested in hiring us for something, um, we, we get booked fast. So, so be as early as you can, if you know, you need an audit coming up. It's also a great way to secure an audit later on down the line is to kind of 
introduce yeah. them to a project early. So that's just even a better way to kind of uh, potentially, one, get your foot in the door to get the audit you want later, as well as maybe potentially right. reduce a lot of price of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, this cool. is a, that's a good sales pitch. Way to make the sales pitch for me of why I, people I should it, like contact us. My whole goal <laughs> as, as a security engineer status is to minimize the cost of audits while also getting audits, right? So. Yeah, yeah, yep. That's All right, cool. well, thank you very much. All right.